Welcome to the Matthew Moran podcast. Here I sit down and talk with some of the best photographers, writers, editors, designers, and publishers working in the visual arts. These conversations will give you an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts, and it is a chance to hear their story and personal journey in a rapidly changing, highly competitive, but hugely exciting field. I've had the pleasure of working with many of my guests over the years and have learned so much from spending time with them, not just working together on projects, but having conversations about what it means to be a creative freelancer, sourcing exciting projects, sharing skills through partnerships, and not losing sight of your goals and dreams. This podcast is my chance to share these stories with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. My guest today is Josh Kempinski. Josh is the country director for Fauna and Flora International in Vietnam. One of the world's oldest international conservation organizations, FFI currently works on over 140 projects in more than 40 countries. Based in the capital, Hanoi, Josh runs the primate program. Remarkably, Vietnam has 25 primate species, of which 11 are critically endangered. You know, we hear lots about the race against time to save species, and the situation in Vietnam is unprecedented. Take the cat bar langa, for example. With only 50 to 60 individuals remaining in the wild, it's a species hanging on by a thread. Vietnam's economy has been one of the best performing over the past 10 years, which is good news for a country that not so long ago was desperately poor. However, this growth has brought with it the inevitable thirst for raw materials, for new homes, hotels and luxury resorts, which pushes wildlife populations into smaller, more isolated islands of habitat. Despite the perilous situation, Josh and his team remain positive and have seen great success stories of species rebounding back where proper protection has been put in place and doggedly managed. In this episode, Josh talks about the day-to-day -day life of a conservationist who started out like many putting in numerous hours volunteering and working for low pay. During this time, he gathered a wealth of knowledge and experience that has helped him to follow his passion for more than 20 years. This interview took place in Hanoi, where I spent a few weeks putting together a film with Josh for FFI that talks about conserving Vietnam's primates, the threats they face, and the race against time to save species. Josh speaks openly about his journey to becoming the country director and how he believes there's a good reason for hope in an age where positive environmental stories are heavily outweighed by the negative. So here's my conversation about conservation with Josh Kempinski. first international podcast. We're in city of Hanoi, capital of Vietnam, and I'm with my good and very old friend, not old in age, but um, yeah, we go back a long way and we tried to organise this podcast many times when you were back in London and um, failed miserably, so we've done it the hard way. Um, but this is great. So welcome along, Josh Kempinski. Thanks for taking the time to be on the on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> um, so obviously, I'm here and to see you, and we've been doing this work together. And we're making a video. Hopefully, by the time this podcast goes out, actually, they might go roughly around the same time. Um, we're going to release this video that we've made that highlights the essential need for 
conservation, focusing on primates um, in Vietnam. And it's been fascinating for me. It's been a real eye-opener and also seeing you work and kind of really seeing the front line of conservation um, work here and the work that you do and the work that FFI do and the partners. And it's kind of, on one hand, really exciting. On the other hand, really daunting. And (laughs) I'm sure it's like that for you every day. but also what's really good about this podcast and coming to you as a conservationist and not necessarily a photographer is that the last sort of three guests I've had have all been photographers right. and they've all been kind of more more focused on the conservation side of yeah. photography. So right. it's nice to be able to speak to a, a pure conservationist. <laughs> um, and really, I think what might be quite good is, you know, there are parallels between making your living as a photographer, the same as making your living as a conservationist. And, you know, I get a lot of people who follow me or have been listening to this podcast who mm. are keen in, in those fields and there are crossovers, but it might be a good place to start going back to your your roots in conservation mm. and, and, and what got you interested in the natural world and why you decided to take that path at a young age. Right, yeah. Um, well, it's funny, you know, of course, we grew up together in in uh, leafy North London, but it wasn't exactly a, you know, a forest, not, not, not a lot of wildlife around. But mm. yeah, from a very young age, I was really interested in, in um, yeah, in in conservation long before I even knew what conservation was, you know, as a as a as a thing and as a profession. Um, I think I used to think of it as just saving animals. I think I used to use that term quite a lot. Right. I think probably quite young. I was, you know, we were exposed to the you know, Greenpeace and the whole kind of whaling, anti-whaling, sort of the seal cubs in sort of Canada being clubbed. Yeah. All that 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 stuff was from a very young age really stuck in my mind. So it was more. I think probably even maybe more sort of started with almost animal welfare, just like yeah. wanting to save animals from from bad things happening to them. Um, and I yeah I've turned vegetarian when I was eleven, you know much to my parents' surprise and, <laughs> and uh, we had loads of pets at home, cats and rabbits and rats and birds and yeah just was just really just really interested in wildlife yeah. and, and wanting to save it. But it was years later that I even found out that conservation was a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think for a long time, you know between those very young years and then actually getting into conservation for quite a long time through through school actually. I think I thought that maybe sort of exploration was kind of the thing to do. So like I was going to become, I don't know, like a Randolph Fiennes or something, that kind of thing, yeah. like, you know, basically an Indiana Jones kind of, yeah. sort of fantasy of being in the forest, being around wildlife adventure, but really not knowing, you know, I think even back then, so this is, you know, this is in the 80s, you know, conservation wasn't nearly as, wasn't nearly as well known as talked about as it is now, nothing like it. So I think even the adults around me didn't even really know what it was to even direct me so um it wasn't really until probably until my late teens or even when I went to university that I realized actually what I wanted to become and then then started down a path to get there yeah it's funny isn't it I mean I think probably you know people weren't really talking about what was endangered or critically endangered which I guess means that you know organizations like Greenpeace and WWF and World Fauna Flora International have existed for a long time you know the role that they have in kind of informing people is huge and mm. and you know can't be underestimated but you know you, you mentioned like indiana jones who you also like me you know watching bbc wildlife documentaries and 
um, David Attenborough and, you know, were there any other kind of key influences when you were younger that you can look back on now? Um, I think it was, yeah, I think it was, yeah, definitely, definitely those documentaries. My whole family were really into those documentaries, Mm. particularly my grandparents, actually. Right. Um, And they became really interested in wildlife, I think, again, at a time before it was really sort of in vogue. And I remember they came into a little bit of money um, after they retired and they spent quite a lot of that money just like on various wildlife watching trips. They went to the Galapagos, they went on safari, came back with all these cool pictures and... So I think yeah that 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 was an influence actually fine enough more than my more than my parents mm-hmm. who weren't that interested in that sense, um, and yeah wildlife documentaries and and yeah then then and yeah then sort of even though we grew up in London trips out to the countryside I had a cousin that lived in Sussex in quite a rural in quite a you know, sort of you know, not not in a town a kind of quite a rural uh, part of part of the county and. There was like forest at the end of her garden, and we used to like kind of you know all the kids, used to, all the cousins used to go down there and and play in the forest and stuff. So I think those were like quite formative. They, yeah. Those things really stuck in the mind. Yeah. yeah. And so you mentioned going to university, mm. and you know at this time maybe even not you know, knowing what conservation was, but it wasn't obviously. I want to be a conservationist, or I want to work in conservation. Mm. So what did you study, and 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 why? Yeah, I, I I did geography as my as my undergrad, mm-hmm. um, which is which is interesting because even though it wasn't, you know, that is not yeah, a lot of conservation sort of don't don't come in come in that route, um, but then actually it's a really good degree for conservation because mm-hmm. it's very holistic and mm-hmm. you learn about how you know sort of how things interact sort of on the ground, spatially and. You know, what what leads what leads into things looking the way they are what are the drivers what are the forces and you know a good geography degree will bring in you know sort of politics and economics and and environment and everything which is actually a really good training for conservation so i yeah i, I think by the time i'd chosen geography i had a sort of rough idea that what what i wanted to be i still didn't really fully know if i'd fully known i probably would have done a zoology degree right. to be honest but, yeah um but yeah i did a geography degree and then realized pretty soon at uni what I wanted to be and actually thought oh, this is probably actually quite a good degree and, and then since then in later life you, you do meet quite a lot of geographers actually yeah. in conservation so obviously it is, it is it is actually probably now quite a sort of normal route sure yeah yeah and I was thinking actually um because I know you did a big trip to Asia was this before or after university before yeah, so before my, yeah, so you were yeah. you would have been what 18 yeah 18 yeah and uh so that was your first kind of big trip out of the UK and it's mm. funny now us both being in our 40s and we look back on that you know 18 is really young yeah. and and yeah tell us a little bit about that and where you went why you chose to go where you went and well, even, how long you were away for and right yeah yeah so even even that's interesting because you know even just a few years later when you and me traveled in in Africa in our in our early 20s yeah that trip was completely about wildlife and mm-hmm. completely about national parks and and protected areas and understanding those visiting those whereas just a few years before that on, on that big on that asia trip it was just much more sort of standard gap year and i didn't i didn't you know i hope to see a lot of natural you know natural sort of wonders or whatever but i was not you know there wasn't right. there was no plan around yeah, that sure and i was actually and actually right early on in the trip we had a pretty amazing experience which again was probably quite formative actually for me which was that um we were in india and you know we, we were there more for kind of cultural reasons sure. and just sort of like you know 
yeah, sort of the, the you know, Rajasthan and the forts and the rivers and all that kind of stuff. And then I had a, a friend of mine, Indian, an Indian friend of mine, who who said, oh, you know, while you're here, we should go to a national park together. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea. I didn't even kind of know that was like a thing, yeah. a thing to do. And he took us off to um, to uh, uh, Karna, a national park right. in central India. And we did, we did these kind of you know, the classic kind of morning and evening game drive. Yeah. And I was like completely blown away. Right. It was absolutely amazing. And just, yeah, that was like, I think probably that was the final, yeah. the final clincher. That was the, sort of the hook moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the sort of misty mornings, the bird song, getting up a bit tired, you know, before sunrise. Yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, I just didn't know that was, yeah, I didn't, didn't really know that was a thing. Yeah. And then, yeah, was, yeah, I was hooked. And so you went to India. You went to India, where else? Na- India, Nepal, um, same sort of yeah. Went to a, a reserve up in Nepal, it was really nice. And then China, and then for for about six weeks, then into Vietnam, right. which of course was interesting because I ended up living ended up living here. Amazing. And I think that that was also formative for that yeah. as well because um, India and China were were both amazing, but pretty kind of full on experiences, yeah. especially for like an eighteen year old. Yeah, and, and then what what year, what year was this that you? This did? is ninety six. So this would have been like kind of pretty much no internet, no mobile yeah. phones, yeah. not even let alone smartphones. Not oh even, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And they're pre mobiles, pre. So you kind of to communicate, you're writing letters and visiting yeah, post restaurants. Post, post, restaurant, post yeah. Restaurant, yeah. And and I promised my mum I'd have a, I'd, I'd go to the. Uh, yeah, the, the post office and do it you know have a get a you know a charge card or do a re- reverse charge call <laughs> once a month from the post office and and, and, and pretty much to keep to that but that was it that was yeah. my only communication with my family was yeah. a once a month phone call pretty different for, for young people backpacking today amazing for whatsapping and whatever with yeah. their parents <laughs> so yeah so um so yeah and then from that into vietnam and vietnam has it's obviously changed a bit now vietnam's pretty hectic itself these days but Back then, in the mid nineties, I mean, Vietnam had only just opened up to the outside world. Wow! A couple of years beforehand, it was still a pretty poor country, and but yeah, it was it was really calm and quiet, mm. and people were lovely, and and yeah, I fell in love with it definitely. People on bicycles instead of mopeds. Oh yeah, and yeah. now now everyone's in cars. It's like yeah, yeah it's changed so much in twenty years. Amazing. Yeah, but that trip wasn't it wasn't like oh I've I've fallen in love with this country I have to come back here this is where I'd like like I kind of love to work. I de- I definitely did fall in love with Vietnam on that trip. It really stuck in my mind. Mm. Ind- um, Indonesia and Vietnam were the two countries that really stuck in my mind. Apart apart from the national parks in India, which were which were amazing, but yeah. as countries, those two kind of stuck out. But um, but it was um, but yeah, it's a few years later I got basically I got a, a possibility of work and I was mm-hmm. like oh well I already know Vietnam I think it's a really lovely country yeah. and now I've got this opportunity so that, so I came back that was in two thousand and four yeah and that's interesting because you know this this idea of a possibility of work and you know there's a lot of people and I, and I mean I would I would even say from my experience of talking to people it's probably even harder to get paid work in conservation than it is in like the visual arts you know there's so many yeah. areas of employment opportunity with you know not just being a photographer but being an edit- editor or videographer and mm. you can pick up stuff you know gear relatively cheaply but conservation i mean not only do you have to be like hugely well qualified you've got to put your volunteer hours in mm. and how did that work kind of after university and um you know, you sort of finding work or finding your path and you know, knowing what you wanted to do. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I think if you if you ask any conservationist, I think you know, most of us have sort of similar similar ish 
stories actually and it's um but yeah i i looked looked for yeah looked for volunteer opportunities mm-hmm. um yeah you write a lot of letters you know often most get ignored and of course now now i i get now i receive those letters yeah. often that's, that's funny but um but yeah and then eventually something sort of something sticks and actually my girlfriend at the time she saw and she saw an advert on a on a so I'd, I'd already done two or three years of volunteer work um, one of those years was in Greece which was great yeah. did some radio tracking with large carnivores which was really cool up on the border with Bulgaria so I'd done some really some nice volunteer work and then she saw this advert for um, they wanted a kind of yeah sort of a paid volunteer but a couple of hundred dollars a month of paid volunteer to come to a national park in Vietnam and help them develop a kind of field sort of field program start yeah. helping with a bit of field work and one year kind of one year position I was just yeah, I was like yeah brilliant brilliant yeah. and then that was that you know and and I think you know I've, I've asked a lot of my guests about the sort of the nitty-gritty of the finances you know I've, I've um, my last guest you know Margot she was a you know kind of a high-flying PR um, you know person in PI run a run her own company and then basically gave it up to go into conservation and she's produced all these great books and mm. that's one thing and I asked her you know, well, how do you actually you know make a living so if you were like doing volunteer work for a couple of years in Greece and where else around Europe how are you paying the bills it's funny isn't it when you're when you're young it's like you don't you don't seem to yeah. you don't have very much no. and yet you don't seem to also need need very much yeah. I mean Actually, I say a couple hundred dollars a month. Actually, I think it was a hundred dollars a month right. the first year I was there, and then I got a hundred percent pay rise, and I paid two hundred dollars a month <laughs> in the subsequent year. And you're but, probably like, "Wow, this is incredible." Well, yeah. I mean, you're living in a national park. Accommodation is accommodation is is provided. Yeah. Um, you know, you obviously when, during, while you're at work, everything's provided. And if you're on a trip, of course, you get like costs covered. Um, and they had a little restaurant in the national park where I could just get like pretty funny. It's pretty much the same meal pretty, yeah. pretty much every night, <laughs> um, which didn't cost very yeah, much. Yeah, it's not like you could go out to the local town and no. go to cinema. Yeah, no, there was none of that. Yeah, and then you know, people in Vietnam were very generous. People were sort of inviting you for food, inviting you for drinks and stuff, mm-hmm. and drinking local rice wine, which is really cheap. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, I'm mean, like, I, 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 I actually couldn't spend that hundred dollars. <laughs> and actually, and funnily enough, it was such a small project that we had to pay for our own. We had to pay for our own internet use. Wow! Because that was like a big expense for of the project. Course, yeah. So, um, so yeah, actually, um, it was. Um, I mean, your, your own personal internet in, internet use. So, like, yeah. So I, I, I had to contribute like sort of ten dollars or something, twenty dollars for internet. And actually, actually, what well, actually I'm, I'm forgetting it was mostly not internet. It was mostly calls. Right. So I was at that time still. You know, my mum was not on. My mum was not online, and so I was <laughs> calling my mum and actually my girlfriend at the time as well. I was still back in the UK, so yeah. it was calls. To my mum calls to my girlfriend and a bit of internet time, and that was probably half of that hundred dollars, yeah. and the rest went on a bit of rice, and and that was it, and I was fine. So like, now, <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. What were, and what were you doing? What were you doing in 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 the national park? This was this was in Cook Fung. This right? is in Cook Fung National Park. Yeah, so one of Vietnam's sort of oldest kind of flagship. Uh, protected areas um yeah it was, it was great so it was a small carnival project that i was actually working on mm-hmm. sort of like sort of affiliated to the national park but with a couple of westerners on it and some western funding um and they had a they had a rescue center there i'm not captive captive i didn't have any experience with captive works so that wasn't my background but or you know they so they, they asked me to come and help with sort of developing a bit of a field 
you know field research program and training ranges and doing some student training and stuff but um yeah i wasn't sure i'm not sure i was super qualified for it but you know i knew i knew i knew some things obviously i had a degree and 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 actually at the beginning i was actually doing my master's research that's actually what was that was what kind of brought me out there right, right at the beginning and then i I stayed on for a year and then two years contract, but it was nice because also once you also once you're in the national park, you can help with other things. So I helped them develop like some ecotourism activities, mm -hmm. night spotting, camping trips. They didn't have they didn't have anything like that, right. so they were pretty open to like experimenting with stuff, and it was all really popular and great. Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a leaflet in, in Cookville National Park, which is still the leaflet that, that, that leaflet that I developed. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and, which, and that kind of thing must be you know satisfying. It's having yeah. an immediate impact and you know people being open to ideas and i don't know i'm sure like there was a lot of bureaucracy but if you can yeah. have direct direct results then you know you might be making a small difference yeah, you know, yeah, in it your was, field. Yeah. it was amazing yeah i mean you know it was sort of when you're when you're a young conservationist and you just it's all you want to do and you love it and it's exciting and then someone says and, and i'll pay you to do it, it almost mm -hmm. feels weird sure i think that's why so many conservationists get paid so badly because at the beginning you, you don't really almost expect it or want it mm -hmm. and then you almost and then you pretty much accept whatever you're offered it's only later in life you think oh, actually yeah, now I've got to pay bills and yeah. mortgages and stuff it's yeah. a bit, 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 yeah, bit yeah, different but sure. when you're young it's like yeah, as long as you're not starving you're happy yeah. and, and did you know did you know immediately kind of after university that at some point you know if you wanted to go into this career that you were going to need a master's I mean I know it's it's kind of it's less important in in the photographic world that yeah. you need degrees that you need sure. masters. I mean, but unsurprisingly, most of the top photographers are also biologists slash zoologists. Yeah, they really right. know their subject. Of and, course, yeah. But I'm guessing it's more it's probably more important in conservation to have you know that study mm. under your belt. Yeah, I mean, I think in theory it shouldn't be. You know, like I think you know. HR departments would tell you that if you've got if you've got the, the if you if you can do the work if you've got the skills if you've got the experience then you should you know you should be employable. But actually, a lot of people will will definitely look to see you know the first thing they'll check is your qualifications mm -hmm. and like where you got it from as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you got the right degree or relevant degree? Have you got a relevant master's or higher? And you know that is I think and actually and and for some for some employers. Um, it's it's absolutely yeah, it's a prerequisite. Like sure. You can't apply for that. There's actually right. not even a glass ceiling. It's just a ceiling. You yeah. just cannot apply for certain positions without a PhD. I think I might be misquoting or maybe things have changed. But I think you know, institutions like the World Bank, ADB, Asia Development Bank. I think you actually cannot apply for certain right. sort of chief technical advisor positions without a PhD. I don't right. know if that's still the case, but. Um, no, it's you know it's a te it's a te it's a scientific yeah. world. It's a technical field, and actually, if you don't have technical qualifications, you know it, you will struggle. Actually, yeah. now now going back, and of course knowing you so well, and this is interesting, talking in more detail about your career path is you've had this sort of you know study A levels, trip mm. you know abroad to have that experience of other cultures, and you know a great time. And we risk sounding like know a couple of old men in the making or it wasn't like that you know back in our day but you know <laughs> traveling in 96 without internet without mobile phones and of course we didn't know any different yeah, yeah you know looking back now it's amazing you know i've been on this trip now and been whatsapping home and mm. you know messaging through all sorts of different platforms um <laughs> yeah, right. i'm sort of digressing but the point is that you then you know went to uni come out of uni 
And of course, we did that big trip in um, in Africa in, in 2000. Josh and I bought a Land Rover. And that was really when I you know, mentioned it a few times on this podcast, but I got kind of hooked on wildlife photography. And I thought so we made a good a good team, probably still influenced by Indiana Jones, but a bit, bit, bit of David Attenborough as well. But yeah, yeah, go, yeah, going to East African national parks and and I mean that whole trip was really based around and national parks and how they function and and I remember actually um, you talking then about that kind of interest around national parks and people and people living on the edges and mm. buffer zones. I remember you talking about that quite a lot. So having, that, yeah. having that sort of understanding that you can't just have a national park and there you go that's for the animals and outsides for the people because of course there's always going to be conflict it's a bit more complicated than that yeah, yeah. um and uh and uh, but then you know in so in between all of this study it's sort of like this really nice well-rounded experience and probably a good break between getting your head down in the books <laughs> and, and 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 reading but um yeah so tell us about you know, what you did for a master's and i guess you're it's almost like you're honing in a little bit more yeah yeah right yeah, it was, um, yeah, so I so obviously had a geography degree and had, then had a bit of volunteer experience, but, um, but yeah, getting getting sort of an appropriate master's was, yeah, it was definitely, I, I, you know, I think probably maybe even at the time didn't realise j- just how useful it was. I just I kind of thought this this is probably a good idea, mm-hmm. but actually, in, you know, afterwards it was actually a really, it was a really good idea. I think it definitely did help me later on in life in my, in my career, and particularly because, you know, there, there is a side of conservation that's very academic. You know, uh-huh. that not, you know, some some people like me are more in that sense more pra- more practical, uh-huh. more you know more hands on uh, to some in some ways. But you know, a big part of what we do is obviously you know, peer reviewed papers and you know, and, and and academic research and and people being affiliated with universities and all that stuff. So actually, running through conservation, there is a there is actually a tremendous kind of respect for having the right qualifications and so you know as I, as I said so that I think that actually did stand me in good stead because I went to Imperial College to do um, a master's degree in, in ecological management right which is like a really good university obviously and like a completely appropriate degree course um, and it was really it was a great course really just one year but really really good really you know, and we, you know we did learn a lot and that definitely did help me later on in life yeah. so um, um because you know conservation in many ways is is ecological management mm-hmm. you know so that's it's a very appropriate a very appropriate sort of title yeah. um yeah so and then from then and then, and then it was it was it was, it was, so that was 2004 and it was it was at it was it was the imperial it was the research for my thesis at imperial that took me to vietnam right and so i was there for a couple of months obviously gathering data and and it was about protected areas and people right, and right. tourism and stuff. Exactly what you were saying. And yeah. then and then yeah. Then from that they offered me a job, and then that was it. Yeah, and that's so funny. We've been talking about that so much this week. You know about kind of people and and protected areas and the conflict and the issues and yeah. and so you know fast forward. Um, I don't know how many years. Fifteen years. You kind of been coming on and off back yeah. to you know between sort of London and Vietnam and. Um, you're now the you're the country director That's v- right, for yeah. Vietnam for Fauna and Flora International. That's and, right, yeah. um, you know you're kind of you're at the top table now. You're the <laughs> the big cheese in conservation. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but um, you know I mean it's 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 like I said earlier, it's been great watching you at work this week and kind of being involved as well. Um, but 
yeah, looking at some of those issues and 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 the, and the job you're doing now, um, you know, maybe just talk about that a little bit and, and talk about your role and what you're doing with 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 FFI and um, actually also just kind of pre- how how long have you been working with FFI now? So I know you're, you you've had quite a few different jobs. Yeah, yeah, no, yes, yeah, so it's, 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 yeah. So everything has kind of gone full circle. So I joined FFI here in Vietnam in two thousand and seven. So um, did two years in the national park, a bit of consulting work, and then yeah, then started working at FFI. So it's been it's been a long time. Yeah, um, I did. I did. There was a year when I left in the middle, and then and then came back. So it's not not quite not right. quite that whole period. But um, but yeah, it's funny because when I joined FFI in two thousand and seven, I was a technical advisor, a kind of somewhat junior technical advisor sure. for the for the primate program. Right, and now I'm the country director and. You know the the primate program has kind of almost spun out to be the the country program. So right. we kind of we focus sort of eighty ninety percent of our work in Vietnam is on is on primates mm-hmm. because you know Vietnam is such an important country for for primate conservation. Um, yeah, what why is that? Yeah, it's yeah it's amazing actually. There's so but, so anyway, Vietnam is one of the most biodiverse countries in the world, which a lot of people don't know. Mm-hmm. I think top six, top fifteen, top sixteen. Um, let me get the stats right. I think it's uh, uh, yeah, I think it's top fifteen, top sixteen, and about ten percent of the world's biodiversity is represented in Vietnam. It's not a big country, so yeah. about one percent. I think about one percent of the Earth's surface. So um, most people wouldn't think that. No, about, no, you think, think that Amazon. And, yeah, it's totally yeah, 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 and it, yeah. It's more. It's actually more bi- more biodiverse in terms of its richness than than a lot of sort of probably countries more more famous for their for their rainforests. Um, but no, Vietnam is is a it's a pretty it's a pretty unique sort of special place, and it's all to do with its with its geography. Really, it's in the transition zone between the humid tropics and the Sundaic region of kind of basically Southeast Asia, and then moving up into the Himalayas and sort of continental Asia. So it's it's that transition that gives it a tremendous range of habitats, and of course, with the range of habitats and ecosystems comes the range of species. Of um, so much much more biodiverse than somewhere like like Cambodia, for example, which is has far fewer different kinds of habitats. It's so close, yeah. Which is just next door, yeah. Um yeah, so yeah, Vietnam's got and, and, and everything from yeah, from, from sand dunes and dry forests to to uh, limestone karst forests and huge wetlands and obviously yeah. one giant <laughs> coastline all the way down. So um yeah, so and then with and then f- from that diversity of habitats comes and, and particularly with some of the cast limestone cast forests, which are, the, are themselves very unique, you get this incredible diversity of of, of species, and in across several taxa. But one of them is the primates. Mm. So pri- in Vietnam, there are twenty five species of primates, which mm. is obviously a lot and pretty surprising. Yeah. Um, of which eleven are now critically endangered, or will be in the next. I think in the next IUCN. Up, updating the red list so 11 are critically endangered and five of them are endemic wow. um, and so primatologists I mean, uh, not all of them would agree but um, you hear more and more people saying that kind of Vietnam, Indonesia and Madagascar are like the most important countries for primate conservation right. because you've got this incredible range of species and so many of them are under threat mm. um, that's not to say that obviously places in South America aren't important for of primates, course. but but they don't have maybe that same combination of diversity, uniqueness, and and threat. And certainly in Vietnam, without without urgent action, we're facing you know sort of a primate extinction event 
of potentially several species, which of course is sort of unheard of yeah. in sort of in sort of you know human history. So um, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit desperate to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So you're really now kind of at, at the forefront, and I don't know. Do you feel a sense of responsibility? You know that, and obviously it's not just about you. You're the you know the program or the the country director, and it's not just even about FFI, of course. Sure. But I can imagine it must be, yeah. It's 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 a bit of a race against time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've started. We've we've sort of started saying to people that this is this is the moment. This is it, really. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's probably true of a lot of places in the world where it's sort of this is literally do or die. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether it's a five year window or a fifteen year window or whatever. But I think we need to put we need to make changes now that give us the opportunity in the future to still have some things to conserve. Yeah. I mean, I remember you and me talking about this years ago, but um, there are some great examples of conservation over the last sort of century and, and more where where animals got down to very, very few and then conservation action, you know, took place. Yeah. And then just by, you know, obviously by just not being extinct, of course, you, you, you then the potential is to rebound and, um, you know, rhino, you know, uh, rhino and, and water buffalo up in Kazaranga in, in India is sure. a good example. I was like, thinking actually when you mentioned that about you know, sea otters on, on the, on the Pacific, in the Pacific Northwest or around Vancouver Island are virtually extinct. Virtually extinct. Yeah. And obviously the classic is the, well there are many, there are many, but you know, buffalo in, 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 in North America, of course, yeah. down to whatever it was, yeah. I think single, double figures, 30 yeah. or 40, I can't remember exact figures, but yeah. I, I'm, you know, yeah. Right on the edge of extinction, from hundreds of thousands yeah. down to whatever it was, yeah. and then and then of course and, there's wolves in Yellowstone. Yeah. Incredible success story. Yeah, re, re, yeah, bringing those back. So, um, so yeah, I think I think and so yeah. I mean, most most of the time, it's it's a job, and you you've got you know you've got a job to do, and you don't necessarily stand back and think about the importance of it. But sometimes it does hit me, yeah. particularly if I'm talking to someone else about our work, and I'm explaining that like. You know, for for several of our for several of the species that we we work on, we are either the only or the main NGO supporting the government. Mm-hmm. In some in some cases, more than others, the government's not that engaged. Right. So it's sort of almost only us. And you think, why? Well, how did we get to this situation sure. where where you know? I mean, for example, one of our species that we work on north of Vietnam is the Calvit gibbon, mm-hmm. which is which is actually the 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 most threatened ape in the world right and yeah we're pretty much the only ngo working working on its conservation they're down to about 135 individuals although that's pretty much doubled since ffi started working so wow. it's, that's it sounds, good news. it sounds dire but it's yeah, yeah pretty desperate isn't it dire but at least the trend's the right way yeah um, they live in about a thousand hectares of forest mm-hmm. i mean it really is you know Bad, 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 you know, bad, bad, a bad situation. Although, as I say, bad but improving. But, but still, you know, if if if, chim- if chimpanzees or orangutans were at that level of endangerment, it would be front page news and everything else. But mm. you know, for whatever reason, certain taxa get become you know sort of famous, and others and others don't. Mm. And that's obviously that's also and it can be an issue in conservation. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, an ape on the edge of extinction. Yeah. yeah, actually, we'll come we'll come back to this because I wanted to ask you a question about that. You know, is 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 getting your message out there? You know, and, mm. and that you know this, this idea that you know, Vietnam's this biodiversity hotspot. Not a lot of people know that. Mm. Not a lot of people know 
that there are 25 different species. Not a lot of people know that five of them are endemic. You know, you just mentioned the cow, but given how much of your work, other than just, you know, the frontline conservation work that you're doing, the day-to-day stuff, is trying to communicate this mm. to people and trying to get action and trying to get funding and trying to get protection and awareness and, and all of those it's, it's another kind of side to the job. Mm-hmm. How, how do you how do you reach your audience? Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you touched on it there a, a lot. It's you know, conservation is is you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's multifaceted. It's holistic. You do need to be doing all of those things, and at the same time, not spreading yourself so thin that it becomes you know, sort of meaningless. So definitely, we we definitely focus on. Um, you know, on the ground in situ conservation. So finding finding populations that we think are viable and then doing what we can to, you know, to, to bring about their recovery, to, to, to change the state, you know, the status of that of that of that animal, of that population. So yeah, we focus on setting up protected areas, supporting protected area managers, you know, you know, improving protection, improving crime prevention and those all of that stuff on the ground. Um and so I suppose you could say that awareness raising, you know, is 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 a, is a lesser part of our, you know, well, it's not lesser. It's it's less of my work is about yeah. is about awareness raising, um, partly partly because we it's what we you know it's so immediate what we need to do. You know, mm-hmm. we just don't have the sort of the the time, the luxury for for a slow societal change. Right. You know, in that sense. But at the same time, probably that's the only thing that's actually gonna save <laughs> these species. You know, right. when Viet when Vietnam is sort of quote unquote when Vietnam is in a position to and has the interest and has the money to sort of to want to do it themselves, then that's when that's when you'll see real change. Mm. I think so I think I think international NGOs often the role that we perform as sort of, as I sort of touched on earlier, but is to just kind of it's basically to avoid extinction. Really, is to is to make sure there is enough, enough representative habitat and species left that that you know you can kind of pass the baton on to Vietnam and then because you know you need really you need millions and millions of, of of pounds and dollars and and policy and attitude change and like to really conserve you know particularly you know. Yeah, some of the animals need large habitats. Some of the large, charismatic kind of megafauna. You know, the the elephants and the wolves of this world, tigers. You know, actually NGOs can't actually can't do it themselves on their own. You know, it has to be a hugely collaborative effort, and you really it really ends up being a government activity. So, but but actually NGOs can they can actually sort of stop the rot, and we've proven that already a few times in Vietnam that. With a relatively small amount of money, you know, some hundreds of thousands, maybe a few million over a few years, actually we have been able to, you know, turn turn it around for some of these species. But, you know, and going from you know maybe fifty, sixty individuals up to one hundred and thirty-five is a huge achievement. But taking it to the next, you know, taking them taking it to the next level and setting up several new reserves and translocations, and I mean, I think you probably have to look to the you know, you have to look to, to countries where you have conservation on that scale and it's a government. It's supported by civil society, of course, but it's a state activity. Um, place like America, which have fantastic protected area systems, countries like Costa Rica, where 
they've kind of built their whole economy around conservation and, and ecotourism. And even uh, we have some really interesting examples in China, which which of course can be a sort of pariah in some in some areas. Um, but yeah, I mean, think of the resources they put into into the recovery of pandas. You know, yeah. they put in. I, I've heard it's been it's now in the billions of dollars. Unbelievable. You know, over whatever twenty thirty years, and of course the result is that they've, you know, they they've created they've generated many you know hundreds of pandas <laughs> to the point where they're no longer critically endangered um, yeah it's incredible it's incredible yeah, yeah. I mean you mentioned the, the success of the cow bit and it might be good now you know we, we often talk about the doom and gloom of conservation <laughs> and you know I mean it's it's good that it, 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 it's in the press you know so much with biodiversity on such a on you know, such a downward spiral because you do hope even though you know sometimes I feel that like people get just desensitized to it, mm. but you do hope that it does have an impact but, you know, we touched on this, you know, in the making of our video in this last couple of weeks, you know, the, the hope and the mm. and the positive stories. And I don't know, maybe it might be men worth mentioning the stuff that we did in, in Kimbang around the Delacour's Langer. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is an, another species that you, you're, you're kind of better placed to talk about. And maybe we talk about a little bit about the, the history of, of, of them and them being critically endangered and Demic and Van Long and, and the new site. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think I think you know global global trends can be, you know, or well, they are depressing. And I think, you know, I think this, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche now. But thinking globally and acting locally, which is, I think, what I was taught at university was the was the way to achieve sustainability. But actually, it's very it's very wise words. And I think, I think that's definitely how how I and how we operate here in Vietnam, which is, you know. You know, do 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 what you can in you know prioritize in terms of species and sites, and then do what you can to protect those. And if you can if you can achieve measurable success, you know at that at that level, then actually you know you are making a change. And and I suppose the only way we'll turn the tide on on the global biodiversity crisis is just lot lots of more local successes. I mean. It is important to have global agreements on biodiversity, like the Millennium Development Goals and so forth. But you can see that it's it doesn't necessarily have the impact because you know tra translating that you know, a, glo a global agreement on biodiversity into hundreds of thousands of decisions on the ground is very very difficult. I mean, it's a good it's a very important framework to have. But um, as you mentioned, Kim Kimbang, one of our sites here in Delacour's Langer, critically endangered and endemic only found in a few provinces in Vietnam, down to about 250 um, individuals. Um, and yeah, where, wherever it exists, still still threatened. So for all the, for all the agreements and all the mm. conferences and everything else, that species will be saved by you know, establishing, as what we're doing now, establishing another protected area for it, um, getting in place good protection, getting in place good management, reaching out to local people, showing them showing local people that it, it can have a huge we think it can have a huge value as a kind of mascot for local tourism tourism's huge in that area and mm. um, in, instantly they filmed the latest king kong film in the reserve where the delicals langer is found yeah so there's i think there's so hopefully some positive publicity there yeah exactly yeah. if we as sort of hooks to kind of hang this on and get mm. people interested but i think yeah i think i think we will i think we will succeed there i think we will set up the new national park there i think that that population will be protected I think tourism will grow, and of course there'll be challenges there, but it'll potentially also 
you know we can harness that and I'm, yeah and I'm optimistic about about that site and about that species even though it sounds on paper to be dire and, yeah you know, and and we talk about we, we are our worries about the elephant you know the re-emergence of the ivory trade and so forth but there are still hundreds of thousands of, of, of elephants compared yes. to yeah. you know some of the primates we're working with in Vietnam down to the last you know some cases actually double figures which yeah. is which is obviously very worrying but um but yeah, site by site, you know, case by case, we do have successes, and mm. I think we have to hold on to those and build on those. And then, you know, obviously, all around the world, there are lots of conservationists and lots of like-minded people, and lots of really good and genuine people in government who do want to achieve something. And I think, you know, I think we have. We, there's nothing else we can do. If we, if we, if we, you know, if we give up on that, then of course we've yeah, of course we've given up. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit like um, you know, if you stand back and, and look at the whole picture and look at it globally, then almost no point in getting out of bed. But exactly, exactly. what gets you out of bed is 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 oh, we've we created a reserve to protect forty langurs. Yeah, yeah. And you know that number could hopefully increase with that protection and investment in in in, in patrol teams sure. and maybe people doing some science on the ground some ecotourism and yeah getting getting local people on board it's potentially even more tangible and even more rewarding actually than some of the other major environmental issues of our time like plastics and and climate change and everything else because you know although although it's very important that we all live as sustainably as we can we also know that our individual action is very you know won't make a huge difference it's 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 on mass collective action whereas you know so you know if you yourself stop use stop using single use plastic of course that won't make in that sense won't make a difference of course if a million people do of course it doesn't yeah. make a difference but yeah. um in the conservation context actually a, a very small group of people with with with, a, with limited resources can actually stop the extinction of a species and there, and there are some examples of, in conservation around the world over the years of individuals doing it some amazing stories of bird conservation where you know what one person has gone and collected the eggs and incubated them and raised chicks and put them back in the wild and you've gone from you know i can't remember you know, there's one very famous species i think it's in mauritius or where they were down to I mean, maybe 10 or less of one of one bird yeah. species and, and now it's recovering and i think it was pretty much down to one to one person yeah so, it's incredible isn't it you know, that and so conservation can can be in that sense incredibly rewarding and yeah and, and it's kind of unconventional yeah. as well one person going out and actually as you were saying that it reminded me of um there's a great photographer and, and conservationist called uh, robin moore he's a scottish guy lives in america and he i saw him speak this year and um they were trying to uh, do this work around this this frog that they believed that there was only one mm. left and they actually set up um, uh, on on a dating site match.com a profile for this frog like looking for a mate right and it went like you know absolutely viral right, right. and then through that campaign they raised you know where i don't know I, i'm guessing you look google it if you know for the listeners that are interested it's a really amazing story yeah right but you know they raised a load of money and, and it funded you know scientists and experts going out in the field and they found like this frog a mate and you know and i think you know, it was a success story, and no bread or yeah, yeah. Um, I know it's amazing. Yeah. It really is. Um, I thought of one thing actually that I, I, I was really interested in that you you mentioned earlier about passing on, you know, the baton to Vietnam and 
getting government interested and getting local people interested because there is you know you've mentioned it in in the film that we've made there is you know this kind of youth movement here in vietnam with with the with the wealth that's been generated in this country over the last 30 years mm. there's this big big middle class you know movement there's young people that are passionate about their country passionate about their environment so yeah can you talk a bit about that and and, and, and kind of what what's happening and I guess the ultimate goal is that, you know, you're not needed here because, you know, in Vietnam, you know, it sounds patronizing, but of course, you know, they can take care of themselves, but, you know, the expertise from, from the West, but, uh, yeah, talk a bit about the, the, just the sort of the youth movement here in Vietnam and, and, and what's happening with that. Yeah, I, 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 I think, I think that, you know, I think, I think it dawned on me quite a long time ago, but definitely feel quite, feel quite strongly about that, that, that it, you know, it, it's part. It's part of a, you know, a development curve that we all go through. I don't think it's. I don't think it. You know, I don't think it relates particularly to any great cultural norms or, you know, I think, you know, look back in in our own culture in the in the UK, and there was a time when there was no concept of conservation or animal welfare, and those things evolved when people had the time, you know. And the luxury to think about those things, and mm-hmm. it wasn't just putting food on the table and priorities and pragmatism, and, and I think that's where Vietnam is now. You know, as I mentioned, you know, back here when I was here in the nineteen nineties, I didn't even, I didn't really realize it at the time actually, but Vietnam was was really poor in, in the early nineties and was still suffering from the war, and then obviously what came after the war, and they were very isolated and et cetera, et cetera, and sanctions and so forth, and um. Yeah, they still had some. They, there were still food food shortages. They were still importing, you know, living on aid from wow. from Russia and stuff. And I've heard some amazing stories in the early nineties of people here like receiving you know, grains from Russia, which they didn't know how to eat. Wow, they didn't know what it was. They just kind of boiled it with water and ate it, and it's like gross. You know, they had no idea how to, <laughs> you know, to turn it into bread or anything. And literally, you know, it's kind of remarkable stuff to think how where Vietnam is now, one of the best performing economies in the world. GDP growth and and um, yeah, I mean, and Vietnam has has made incredible strides out of out of poverty. Some of the some of the best sort of figures in the world in terms of the numbers of people who have been who have come out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think yeah, I think you know, I think yeah, like I said before, conservation here in Vietnam will be successful when it's completely normal mm-hmm. it's just part of being you know a vietnamese person vietnamese government like like, like how normally is i think you know in that, in that sense america is a good example of that yeah. everyone has heard of the national parks and and a lot of people go to the national parks in fact they, the, the biggest problem they have in the states or one of the problems they have is people loving the national parks to death yeah and millions of people going to them and mm. obviously the government wanting wanting them to be open and accessible but then actually needing to control numbers and so forth you know, I think that's where Vietnam will be in the in in the future. I, I you're, really, you're hopeful for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and if you look at other countries in the in the region that that are a bit more a bit more developed or went through economic development earlier for various reasons, like like China, like Thailand, you see that already. You know, you see, see some. I mean, yeah, China China funds its own reserves extremely extremely well. I mean, there are some you know there are potentially some issues about China's global footprint on wildlife, but actually domestically they yeah. actually do a pretty amazing job of protecting biodiversity more and more. Um, and a lot of state 
you know, a lot of state funding and you know, hundreds of millions going into their protected area system. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm very hopeful in that sense. And and, and yeah, so to sort of go back to your to your to your point, I think yeah, we are sort of making ourselves redundant in many ways and handing it handing the baton over. And there's already huge signs of change and development with as you say, young people, the government, companies. That isn't to say there isn't still a long way to grow to sure. go. It's it's still early days. Um it's definitely still early days. But the point is is the change is in the in the right direction. Yeah. Even when I got here in two thousand and four, I didn't I there was no kind of youth green movement to speak of. And now there's lots of you know, everything from Facebook groups to small NGOs to kind of civil society organizations to, you know, sort of already a few kind of heroes coming forward and yeah. people being kind of you know, young young people who are now famous in the you know, in, the, in in that world, the small yeah. world. But like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I, that gives me a lot of optimism. Yeah, even in my short time here, just a few weeks, you know, I've met many young people who have you know, or even you know, your colleague Lam, you know, studying his masters in Hawaii. I met um, uh, Chung, a young guy who works for Green Viet, a NGO in 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 Danang and south of here. You know, he's studied his PhD in in in, in, in well, hoping to study his PhD in New Zealand so right, yeah, yeah. you know it was just, an, it was just to, to think about the effort of doing that in, in a foreign language and yeah, yeah, it's amazing. incredible yeah, yeah, yeah really impressive yeah so you see that more and more as well yeah got you know people coming through here um working with NGOs building up the experience building up the language skills then going off and yeah getting qualifications abroad then coming back and being even more you know even more qualified even more useful and yeah. take, taking and then taking it forward i mean i have at ffi here there are 22 of us mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the staff not including the community sort of community patrol teams that that, that takes us over 100 but in terms of actual staff people on staff contracts there's 22 of us and i'm the only foreigner right um and that's not out of any kind of like over you know, nationalizing policy or, you know, positive discrimination or anything. It's just that, sure. you know, we're in Vietnam and we need to do conservation. And so we hire people to do it. And of course, they're all Vietnamese. They're yeah. totally qualified. Whereas it could look like, you know, the Westerners are just hanging on by hanging a thread. On, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose in that sense, in that sense, we are. And I suppose there's still, there's still a role for, for international people or there are roles for international people in in as in 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 if if they have particular skills or specialisms to offer, but you know, we're we're right on the edge of that being sort of regardless of where you're from. Mm-hmm. So it could be, you know, a Vietnamese expert might be also international because he might be he or she might be working in Laos or Cambodia as an expert, you know. Sure. And and I think so in that sense it becomes a kind of level you, you'll still have you'll still have international people you know, sharing ideas and, and, and being experts and things, but it's, it's no longer really about like, you know, it's, it's all, it's already been handed over in that sense. Yeah. It's already, yeah. you know, FFI, Vietnam is aside from me. And obviously I have a sort of a particular role also kind of interfacing a little bit between FFI and the UK right. and Vietnam. So there are particular things that relate to me being international and, and also language and English as a first language and stuff. But, um, but yeah, for the, for you know, ninety nine percent of our work is the staff who are all Vietnamese working along with local communities who are all Vietnamese, yeah. protected area managers who are all Vietnamese, yeah. and 
government departments and Vietnamese donors. We have increasing money from Vietnam, which is great. Yeah, it's a you know it's it's a very Vietnamese picture. Yeah, and that's great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Really good. Um, the time always flies when I do these, um, <laughs> but um, we'll slowly come to an end. I sort of a couple more questions, um, sort of really regarding like you know the future. So two two in a two prong question is one is like kind of you as you know the the boss of the Vietnam program here in in. Um, FFI and, and FFI's hopes mm -hmm. say for example like in 10 years what you hope to achieve and then kind of you you personally you know we talked a lot about your journey getting here mm -hmm. you know and obviously this is you know you, you can go further you can become FFI CEO or whatever but like <laughs> yeah. you know what what your hopes are as as well <sighs> interesting yeah good question I mean I think I, it sounds a bit sounds a bit kind of easy to say a bit uh you know, but um, I think FFI's plan is to is to stay here as long as we're needed. You know, I think, and I think that will it, it will be quite clear when we're not needed. You mm -hmm. know, and I think, and I think probably quite, you know, probably it would it would become suddenly very difficult to raise funding, and it just wouldn't make sense anymore. I think I think when there's no need, you it will be clear. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's imminent, to be honest. I think the role of international NGOs is still. It, it does fill a gap, um, and and there's a and, and and a level of expertise and and an approach and, and of course being FFI Vietnam you know we're FFI we're not FFI Vietnam it's just a country office sure. and of course behind me is this wealth of experience and expertise which I can I can I can and do draw on at all you know at all times so um, and and you know local NGOs don't necessarily have that and. A lot of our work is actually about partnerships and working. So even as well as all my staff being Vietnamese, we also work with several Vietnamese NGOs. So, you know, yeah, not just it's not. I think it's a bit easy to say say capacity building. I think capacity is in many ways already very high. But there yeah. are just there are just certain facets of our work that just just benefit from that international support, international framework, and and it relates to funding and and. Uh, and yeah and academic links and all kinds of all kinds of nuances but yeah and i guess and, these things like you said it's not you know ffi leaving here kind of brushing your hands like our work is done is not going to happen overnight no, you no. phase very gradually exactly. yeah um but yeah exactly phase you i suppose you go through a process of nationalizing which we already have i mean when vietnam when ffi started in vietnam which is 21 years ago it was it was it was about probably about fifty fifty foreigners and Vietnamese. Right. Well, there were lots of young, you know, lots of young expat, you know, people, actually people like me. Although I wasn't there at the beginning, but people like me. Whereas now, of course, it's very different. You know, we we don't we don't need that or look for that anymore. Um, and of course, it's different country by country in the region, but it's I know it's the same and even more in China. Mm -hmm. You know, there's most NGOs are 100% Chinese for the, yeah. for the same for the same reasons and you're right it's not about just saying yeah job done and we we're off it's a slow process of yeah of, of transition and an FFI continuing to support and, and maybe that the, the, the type of support would also change over time and yeah. you know you go, you go from being it's already changed in the last 20 years from being very western driven and hands-on to being, you know, more of a facilitating role, and then maybe even more in the background, maybe just working. Maybe we would eventually close the country office, just work through partnerships. And I suppose eventually, you would you wouldn't need to exist. But I, 
I think people do sometimes say that about conservation NGOs. We know we've succeeded when we don't. We won't need to exist anymore. But yeah. I have to say, I think I think that's a utopian vision. Yeah. That, you there's, know, there's always going to be a need, isn't there? Because exactly. they're always going to want. Yeah, there'll be a new mining company that wants exactly. to set up, and you know, there'll be like a new logging company that wants to go in. And yeah, yeah. I think that about. I think that about like for example, the UK where we're from, or the US, where. There are, you know, there are lots of environmental, lots of conservation NGOs that even focus, you know, within, you know, and and, and really long-standing and excellent organisations like Audubon Society sure. or you know um, Nature Conservancy, huge NGOs in, in in America who have clearly a lot of work to do in just maintaining that amazing protection yeah. system and all it's constantly under threat. And now see the Trump administration's in and you know, overt attacks on 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 the system and on its funding and you know and. and yeah, physically and also in terms of finances and everything else. And then, like in the UK, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a member of of Woodland Woodland Trust, and I think you know this constant battleground for what's left of our ancient woodlands. Of course, you know planning decisions and yeah. you know the new railway up to you know, um, HS two and uh, is it going to go through? You know, yeah. and, you know SSIs and you know. So I I think the idea that, that you know so I. I I think you know, civil society NGOs have will have a role to play yeah. probably forever or yeah. whatever that means. But um, yeah, whether that's whether that's a FFI in its current form or another form or you know, um, it's yet, yet to be seen. But um, no, I think I think you need you need both. You need you know the state and civil society kind of working together in whatever in whatever context. So yeah, um, and me and me personally, just to the second part of your question, me me personally. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't really. I don't really know. I think. I think in that. In that sense, I'm not. I'm not that ambitious. It's always been. I've always, you know, again, it goes back to really loving my work and really loving being conservationist, loving wildlife, and actually, just always been pretty happy with, pretty happy with where where with where I am. And then, you know, after some years in a position, you start to get, you know, itchy feet, and you start looking for. Mm. You know, you realise, okay, maybe I've done what I what I can in this role, and maybe I'd like to apply this to something else that happened in my last role I was I was international red red plus specialist red plus is basically the climate change and and kind of forest conservation and the nexus between those two and I did that for five years and loved it um, for FFI international role you know working in different countries brilliant and I sort of fancied a change and that yeah. coincided with this job being available in a country where I'd lived before and loved it and sure. et cetera, et cetera. So it was like perfect timing. I suppose, I suppose, I suppose something like that will happen again, yeah. whether that's two, five or 10 years down the mm-hmm. line, but there'll be a, there'll be a time when, when I'm looking for something so you're else. Kind of, you're kind of, you might be the driving force behind it, or it might be an opportunity that comes up and, and presents itself. And go, oh, actually, maybe I fancy a change. Yeah, I think yeah. It depends on I, I, as I say because I'm not that ambitious. I'm not I'm not someone that's like look, looks up job websites or sure. speculatively applies for things. I'm not. I'm just not like that. So, it you know, I'm pretty focused on what I'm doing and I'm enjoying it and I'm pretty hundred percent in it and and I'll be like that until such a time as something changes and yeah. you know maybe that little voice inside you says oh maybe we should yeah. yeah. And of course the, the other things outside of work are you know you're your wife is here, she's Vietnamese, you've got a son, you know, and there's, there's other, other things that come into play, like, you know, putting down roots and... Yeah, sure, sure. Even though I know there's, there's always been sort of this battle with being torn between loving London and but the works here and... Um, I think that never goes away. If, yeah. if you are someone that, like us, if you're from a big city and you, and, and, and you love home, 
it's all, you're always going to be torn. You know, yeah. the parts of me would love to live in London. Part of me would love to live in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like cities. I like the mm-hmm. yeah, I love the, the energy and the kind of vibrancy of, of of just people. And yeah, I'm a city person, but I love being in nature. I love being in the forest. I love my work. So yeah, it's, it's, I don't think I'll ever fully reconcile that that kind of contradiction. But. Yeah, that is the perfect segue into my final question. I ask all my guests this, but I'm going to link it into. You're talking about loving nature, loving wildlife, being in the field. And obviously we've done a lot of traveling together in Africa, North America, India. Um, and that really is where like the buzz is, it's where the passion is. And um, so really, well, the question is, you know, what advice would you give mm. to a young conservationist, you know? somebody who is looking at, at job sites and it's all volunteer roles, no pay, mm. um, but loves being in the field. And then there's this kind of switches, you know, you talked about doing great field work and quick film and, um, but then, you know, the realities are, I think that with most jobs, the same with all, all photographers, you end up spending time in an office in front of a computer, writing proposals, just sort of the boring yeah. stuff. Um, I'm kind of, this is, this is a question, but I'm just sort of, musing all over this um but it is i think it is interesting that the, the reality of it is not quite as sexy and romantic you know sure. as, as 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 the sort of the young indiana jones you know going out in the field so how do you encourage or what would you say to a young person who wants mm. to get into conservation and and you know and, and cut, not make it but it sounds cheesy but you know what i mean just try and make a living out yeah, of it, yeah. basically I think the good thing about conservation is that it's you know it's it, it requires a lot of different skills and specialisms and I think that's one of the lessons learned over the last few years whatever few years is but you know it, it is you know it isn't just a job for zoologists I think that's a really important part of understanding what conservation is you know conservation biology is a really important part of what we do and it's only one facet right. and actually so much of what we do is a real kind of hybrid of of politics and and sociology and and environment and understanding land use and planning and policy and and drivers and what you know drivers behind drivers and then understanding well we can't we can't change that but can we you know can we interrupt the system somewhere to make a change and theory of change and yeah you know I think so I think I think don't be don't be don't be put off you know don't don't wor- don't worry about it in that sense if you're really passionate about conservation, if you really love it, um, and you're willing to put in the hours and work, I think you'll find your you'll find your place. There are some people who started off like we all do, you know, in the forest, kind of doing surveys, and 30, 40 years, years later, they're in the forest doing surveys. That's what they love, and then they, of course those people become often really focused specialists on one tax or one species, and they're potentially the global expert on that. And that, you know, and and if that's what you're into, then great, and then and then and then everything else, monitoring and evaluation and management and HR, and so, you know, it requires all of that. So whatever whatever is your skills, you know, yeah. you you can put those to good use for conservation. Um, but yeah, be willing to be willing to put in those those early years of of of, of hard work yeah. when. Realistically, the pay isn't great, and realistically, the pay is never great. You know, so <laughs> so you know, be, you know, be re- be ready for that. But uh, but yeah, it's rewarding, and and yeah, once you get to a certain level, of course, I'm country director now. It's yeah, it's a it's a prof- it's a profession, and 
and you know we live comfortably here and yeah life life's pretty good yeah great that's an awesome answer do you feel like do you feel like you you know we were out in the field the other day watching mm-hmm. red shrink duke langers and it was like we were 21 again watching lions in east africa but yeah. do, you, do, you, do you get out as well being country directed you get out in the field as as, as enough <laughs> um because it's important right you yeah, can't yeah. always be in front of no, a computer it's a, good, it's, a, it's a good point yeah no um i think yeah i think you have to find your own you have to find your own balance yeah i think some people i think some people forget that that it's important and you know we are always quote unquote too busy. I mean, I'm I'm too busy every day. So it's very important that you just say, well, I am too busy. I can't, I don't have time to go to the field, but I'm still going because otherwise you would lose touch. And of course, every time I go to the field, I take copious notes, I learn loads of things, get totally inspired, realize that maybe potentially how something's been reported to me is not exactly right or something got lost in translation. So every time I go to the field, it's extremely useful. Um, and and refreshing and everything else. So um, probably not enough, but but I do get to go quite often. The norm, I think the big change is it's very short trips. Yeah, sure. You know, it's a, it's a half a day, a day, two days. Yeah. And I've got to get back to the office. And, you know, certainly gone are the days of spending weeks and weeks in the forest. But mm. um, no, I get out there a fair bit. Um, you know, but obviously we got I've got a family now, and I've got mm. a young son. He's two, and and. Um, you know, you also don't want to be away. Of course, from home. that's that's that, that's the change. That I think you don't necessarily expect. It's not yeah. just that like these things are all a burden. You actually, you know, I, as much as I love being in the field and love being in the forest, I, I want to get back to the office. I've got important things to do, yeah. and I really want to get back and be with my family. Of course, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny you get to that that age now. You need your your creature comforts as well. Like think about what you did and or how we lived in in Africa and whatever it was, $10 a day and yeah. not washing our pillowcases for six months. And you can put up with that, can't you? Yeah. Um, but yeah. When you're young. <laughs> um, Josh, brilliant. Thanks so much. We did it. We finally did it. And we made the time and it's been, it's been great. I've, I've, I've loved being around you and FFI and all the, your staff have been great. And oh, good. Um, yeah, all the, all the experiences that, that this trip's afforded me has been brilliant and, and totally inspiring. Um, and so, yeah, with all of these podcasts, I've, I'll put up some links and so we can put links to, uh, you know, FFI's website to find out more. Um, also Green Viet, you know, yeah. mentioned partners. They were great they were partner, brilliant, yeah. really, really good support on all the work they're doing um, with the Duke Langers and more. Um, and anything else that you tell me, you will put up in in the notes. And, cool. Um, yeah, great. yeah, hopefully, you know, this you know, will we'll, we'll reach a wider audience and get more people inspired about primates and primate conservation in Vietnam. So, thanks so much. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's been great. Many thanks to Josh. What a great talker and inspiring to hear his story. Um, and in the heart of the very country where so many of these amazing species live was such a treat. Um, I was lucky that during my visit I had the chance to see firsthand so much of the development taking place and some of the huge mines that are devastating the primate habitat. It really is um, quite mind-blowing. So if you're interested, uh, in a couple of weeks I will have this film uh, fully edited and up and uh, keep an eye on the video page on my website and you'll be able to see it and um, Hopefully you will enjoy that and share it. Uh, The situation really is on a knife edge there. And 
If you also want to get involved firsthand, you can help by becoming a member and supporting FFI's work simply by visiting their website. There's information there. It's fauna-flora.org. Um, and if you want to find out more about some of the endangered and critically endangered species Josh is working with, you can visit fauna-flora.org forward slash countries forward slash Vietnam. I'll put a full set of links up in the notes on his page. One thing that's interesting is hope has been the key theme in the last few podcasts from Margot's grassroots conservation and the fight to save African species to organisations like FFI working with government and civil society and the recent environment protests by Extinction Rebellion have got people talking and more importantly taking action. I can be down as anyone when it comes to the plight of species but being part of this movement which can and will affect change is so inspiring and I'm remaining positive going along on the ride and I encourage everyone who listens to this to do the same you know get involved no matter at what level whether it's a campaign to clean up the streets in your neighborhood planting trees joining in protest about environmental issues or going deep to study and learn about conservation like Josh did there are endless ways to get involved so if you've enjoyed this podcast and others I would love it if you could spread the word they are all completely free so you can pay me back with five minutes of your time to uh, leave a review on itunes let others know what you think um, and sharing it on your social media networks and uh, yeah just by telling your friends about it be a really big help uh, helps us to reach a wider audience and also for people who are not necessarily familiar to the nature photography world but do have an interest in it and you know they can hear and all these great stories and all the hard work that so many dedicated people that I've interviewed uh, put in and what goes on behind the scenes so again to find out more about me you can visit my website it's matthewmoran.com um, there's tons of information up there I've got a blog obviously this podcast page um, you can watch videos uh, scroll through my galleries I'm going to put a new one up a Vietnam one up pretty soon to tie in to the release of this podcast and social media Twitter and Instagram are both at Matt Moran Photo. Facebook is Facebook forward slash Matthew Moran Photography. If you'd like to meet me, come on a workshop, improve your photography skills. If you're in the London area and want to come on beautiful Hampstead Heath, you can visit the workshops page on my website. Check availability there. May is sold out. Um, taking bookings for June. I've only got a few spaces left. And then we have a summer break. I'm back again in the autumn for the beautiful colours. The next two podcasts I already have booked in. I've got two heavyweight photographers and filmmakers. Really excited about that, so stay tuned. And until then, thanks again for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.